At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. All right, this morning, if you've got a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. If you're having a hard time finding Esther, you can go um, kind of to the middle of your Bible. You'll probably find Psalms, and if you get to Psalms, go to the left a little bit, and you'll see Job, and then a little bit before that, you'll run into to Esther as well. And so we're going to uh, be working in, in this book uh, together today. So go ahead and, and turn there. We're going to uh, start off in chapter 1 and work our way uh, through the book together. So on this first Sunday of 2022, I want to ask you a question. In 2021, you made a lot of decisions. Ponder some of those decisions real quick. How many decisions did you make in 2021 that were good decisions? Some good decisions? Anybody make some bad decisions in 2021? Okay, I see those hands. I see see those hands. I'm raising my hand too as well. You know, we're, we're called and we're, because we live life, we make a lot of decisions every single day. And over the course of this last year, we made decisions. And some were good, some were bad, some I wish we, I'm sure we wish we could take back and some we wish we could relive. But the reality is, is that our decisions matter. Our decisions make a difference. And sometimes we, we feel as though and we live as though we live in like this vacuum where the world revolves around us, that I can do whatever I want, and implications, don't worry about implications of the future because there aren't any, all that matters is today. And sometimes we live our lives recklessly, sometimes we live our lives cautiously, but yet we make decisions every single day. And sometimes we forget that those decisions have consequences. Those decisions impact things. Even the minute details, the minute uh, decisions that we make, decisions that we make today aren't just decisions that live in today. Decisions that we make today in make habits. And these decisions that make habits uh, increase and in, have implications on our character. And they have implications not only on our character, but they end up making decisions, these decisions have implications on the way and the story that our life is going to tell. Not only today, but to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. So I thought it'd be important for us to begin this year talking about our decisions. Making sure that we understand that our decisions matter and they, they make a difference for better or worse. But how do we make decisions that honor the Lord? And today I want to draw your attention to the book of Esther Now, there are 10 chapters in the book of Esther, and I wish I had time this morning to unpack the whole story of Esther to you, but you don't want me preaching through 10 chapters because we'll be here until next Sunday. So I'll try to be brief, but if you will do me this favor, and you'll be blessed by it, sometime this week, read through the whole story of Esther. It's 10 chapters. You can probably do it in 30 minutes. If you're a fast reader, you can do it faster than that. If you're a slow reader, it may take you an hour. But read through the 10 chapters. And what you'll see as you read through this, and we're going to highlight a little bit today, is that this is a book of decisions. 
They're constantly decisions that need to be made. People are always, they, they come to a crossroads and they have to choose to go this way or to go this way. And this is a constantly reoccurring theme that happens in this book. It's a book of decisions. And we see in the book that some make decisions that have positive implications and some make decisions that have bad implications. But yet the whole time God is in and working in and around those decisions. There's one of the unique things about the book of Esther is that the book of Esther, though it's inside of the Bible, God and his name are not mentioned once. God is an ever-present actor and mover in the book, but his name is not ever mentioned. No one ever calls on the name of the Lord. God doesn't speak in a way that is recorded. There aren't any prophets that are speaking any new words from the Lord, but God is a very present actor in this book. We also see in this book that God is, a, God is a very present and active worker in historical events and, and through world powers. Now, let, let me remind you that this book is living and active, but it's also a historical document that documents things that actually happened in the world and in history. There are things that we're going to see today that even history, history books and the historical events that we've studied in school show up in the Bible. And so this is a very reliable book. Not only is it accurate, but many historians have used the Bible to help them understand what actually took place in history. And so we see that God's plan is actually a part of world history. And it's amazing how this shows up. So we go to Esther chapter 1. I want you to see how all this ties in. In Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, on the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. So the writer of Esther is actually giving us a time stamp. It's saying that this, this, what we're getting ready to read, actually took place in history. There was actually a time that all of this was taking place. And some historians we see um, would refer to Ahasuerus. He also went by another name, and his name was Xerxes. Do you guys remember Xerxes from your world history? King Xerxes, remember he was king of Persia? And we see here that this king Xerxes reigned over all the region from Ethiopia to India. This is a large area, right? Ethiopia and Africa, India and India, you know, the, all the way along the sea there. This is uh, a man who was a historical figure that actually reigned a lot. He was the leader of the Persian Empire. You're like, well, that's great. Let me put this in the, the context of also in biblical history, right? So the Persians, God raised up the Persians to defeat the Babylonians. Remember the Babylonians? They were the ones that God used to put his people in captivity. Remember when God's people in the Old Testament were disobedient, God raised up the Babylonians and took all the people out of, of, of Jerusalem and out of their land and put them in Babylon and what's taking place is now in the, the, Babylon has now been defeated. Persia has risen and defeated Babylon. A lot of those that were in exile, a lot of those Jewish people had gone back to their homeland, but some still stayed. 
And we're going to see some of those that stayed uh, as this biblical account unfolds for us today. But as we get to chapter 1, I want us not to miss where this lays in history. So what has just taken place prior to this is, is King Xerxes has, has uh, got all of his military leaders and all of his brainiacs and all the smartest people that he could, could come together, and they met for six months because King Xerxes wanted to rule the world. He had total world domination on his mind. And so he's gathered all of his political leaders together, all his military leaders together, and they have a summit for six months where he sees the one of the greatest empires that stands in his way is that of the Greeks. And so for six months, they conspire and they plan and they come up with a plan of how they're going to overthrow the Greeks. And so where we see now in chapter one is after that summit, after that planning, they celebrate and they celebrate in a big way. Everyone's coming into the palace. The drinks are flowing. It's a huge, big party. Everyone's getting ready to celebrate because they know that they are going to become the only world power ever. And so Persia was mighty and they were going to overthrow everyone else. And in the midst of this, what we see something take place the king in his drunkenness with all of his buddies around him calls for the queen, calls for Queen Vashti to come and he, he wants to come and parade her among his people. But she refuses. She refuses, she doesn't wanna have any part of this and so the king is hurt by this but the king is also frustrated by this and the king is also angered by this. So he gathers some uh, counselors close and they're like, he's like, what should I do? And they're like, listen, like we can't have women uprising in this culture. Like women need to be put in their place and you can't have, because if she can do it, then what's to stop the woman in the home from telling the husband that it's his turn to make the dinner. So we can't have this. You gotta, you gotta put the kibosh on this. And so what does he do? He has her removed and she's killed. That's the end of chapter one. Right? Devastation, right? This king, this mighty powerful king is showing his might, showing his brute. And then what happens in history that's not recorded in the book of Esther between chapter one and chapter two is that King Xerxes in this mighty multi hundred thousand, two hundred thousand a person army begin to march towards the Greeks. And maybe, maybe you saw a movie called 300. Anyone see the movie 300? About the 300 Spartans? Okay, that, that's, that's taking place between chapter one and chapter two, right? Remember the scene, the mighty Persian army is coming down and standing in their way are 300 Spartans. Brave men that wanna give their life to protect their homeland. And for several days, they stand in this valley and they defend themselves against the Persian army. And it's a vicious battle. And inevitably the Spartans lose. And so the Persians continue to take their battle towards the Greeks and the Greeks finally get their act together and they're like, wait a minute, we're a strong army together. And so they, I'm summarizing a lot of history, so just bear with me. I know I'm missing out, missing some pieces, but just be gracious. So the Greeks rally together and they defeat the Persians. They send the Persians packing and with like little cowards with their tails behind between their legs, they go back to Persia, go back to this area. And it's not until they come back after they've been defeated that this is where we see chapter two picking up. So you have a defeated king who was only concerned about war, only concerned about victory, now has been defeated and now he comes back home. And as he comes back home, 
he begins to think about, hey, I need a wife. I need a wife. And so God, who's been very active in all of that, once again intercedes and we learn about this young woman. Her name is Esther. Now Esther is an orphan. We don't know how Esther's family died, but her parents have both died and she's still stuck as an exile in Persia. And she has a relative, Mordecai, who adopted her and took her in and has been raising her. And this king, now he wants to find a bride. And this is a fascinating story. We don't have time to go through it. But through a series of events, God allows Queen or Esther to find favor in the sight of the king. And he, she becomes his queen. So there we have a Jew. Right there at the top of the Persian Empire. That was placed there specifically by God. So we see God is very active in historical events, but we also see, we want us to see now that God is very present in the middle of evil. For in chapter three, we see another man come on the scene and his, scene, his name is Haman. Haman comes to power and he gets elevated to the second in command over all of, of Persia. And this guy has such an attitude that he decrees that everyone must bow in his presence. So he goes throughout the land and everyone's bowing down because he's so great. He's second in command of the, one of the greatest um, cultures of all time. But he comes across this man named Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew. He's Jewish and he loves the Lord and has been faithful to follow the Lord the best he know how. And he knew and knows the law says that he's not supposed to bow to anyone. So Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. This ticks Haman off. It makes him so mad that he develops a plan to go to the king and say, King, these Jewish people deserve destruction. They, they need to be destroyed. And so the king agrees. And they set a specific day and a specific time for all the Jews in the area to be destroyed. There's a little bit more to this story that sometimes we miss as we just cursory read over, over scripture. Why does Haman hate Jewish people so much? Why is he so angered by this? Not only is he angered by, by the acts of Mordecai, because if he was just angry at Mordecai, he could have just taken Mordecai's life and that would have been it. But no, he wants to destroy all of Mordecai's people. Why is he so angry? Well, we read, there are several times we read through this that Haman is referred to as Haman the Agagite. We read this several times. And so we don't wanna gloss over that because it's important, he's an Agagite. Well, what does that mean? Well, therein lies the problem of his hatred towards the Jews. Because if we go back in history, we go back to the time in which God led his people out of captivity in Egypt. Moses is leading them and they're in the wilderness. And there was a group of people called the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites? The Malachites were descendants of Esau. And so they see God's people in the wilderness and they attack them. And God is so angered by this attack on his own people that he curses the Amalekites and says, there will be a time where I curse you and you will be no more. You will have no more descendants. And years later, time comes on and the leader of the Amalekites be becomes Agag. 
Agag is the, the king and the leader of the Amalekites and, and God has come to the point now where Saul's come on the scene and God tells Saul to go eradicate the Amalekites. So he goes and wages war against the Amalekites and he's defeating them, they're destroying them and God tells him to kill Agag. And Saul chooses to not. He says, I will not. This displeases the Lord greatly. And instead of, the, instead of King Saul killing Agag, we see Samuel, the prophet, come and have to rip him apart. He kills Agag. And so now Agag is dead, and now we see these descendants of Agag. Haman happens to be a descendant of Agag. And he reminded, he's reminded that these Jewish people were the ones that murdered and killed his king years and years ago. And so he has great hatred and great anger towards the Jewish. But what makes it even worse is that scripture tells us that Mordecai was a Benjamite. Do you know who else was a Benjamite? King Saul. And so you can see that the, the repercussions, these decisions from years and years and years and years and years ago now have implication today in the very present time that this anger and hatred has been passed on down from generation to generation to generation. And now Haman wants to destroy all the Jews in the area because he's angry. Now it leads us to a place of where Mordecai hears of all of this destruction and knows the days coming when the, all the Jewish people will be destroyed. Terrible news has come and now he's faced with a difficult decision. And for the time together, I want us to look at three different people that are stuck in difficult places that have to make difficult decisions. The first I want us to see is Mordecai. Turn with me to uh, chapter four. We'll begin in verse one. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's commanded and his decrees reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So coming to this place of seeing, hearing this terrible news, Mordecai is faced with a decision. Either he's going to go the route of fighting against this oppression, or he's going to fall down. Right, with faced with this overwhelming oppression, he's faced with the decision either to fight or to fall down. Mordecai could have rallied the truth. Mordecai could have stepped up and said, this is so unjust, this is not right. He could have tried to stage a coup against Xerxes and against Haman. He could have also gone to Esther and used her as a figurehead to rally more people against the king. But instead of fighting, do you see his disposition? First, he begins with his outer appearance. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. These were symbols of mourning. These were symbols of frailty. These were symbols of expressing grief. So outwardly, he was showing that he was a man that was hurt, overwhelmed by this oppression. So instead of fighting, we see he takes the disposition, disposition of falling down. Instead of going down swinging, he falls down and humbles himself. He mourns. And then it says that he cried out with words. He cried out to God. He doesn't go to other people and complain. 
he goes directly to God and he cries out, not only in his own sense, but he goes out in the city and he's loudly complaining to the Lord, not to other people. But he brings his complaints to the Lord and then he enters and all of the region enter into a time of fasting and praying. You see, when difficulties come, we're told in our culture that we're supposed to stand up and be bold and be brave and to walk with courage and do all these other things. And yet what we see, this beautiful example here is when difficulties come, we fall down. And through praying and fasting, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful tool that God has given us. God has given us mighty weapons, right? And one of the greatest weapons he's given us is fasting and praying. Fasting is the opportunity to empty ourselves where we, re, where we say for an extended period of time or a certain amount of time that we're going to refrain from eating. Why is this so important? I think fasting is so important because it does a couple things. One, it reminds us that we are not self-sustaining. Right? You need food to eat. If you don't eat, you will surely die. Right? And so when we choose to to empty ourselves and give up food for a while, it reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us of our limitations. But it also empties ourselves so that we can be filled by God. So it gives us fasting as an opportunity to be reminded that, that we are finite and that we are needy and we are helpless. But then he gives us the gift of prayer to be able to be filled with our complaints, to be filled with our lamentations towards the Lord and to the Lord. We have this power and this might to be able to communicate to the God of the universe. And when we cry out, he hears us. And so it's not, after, it's, it's not until after he lays himself out before the Lord that the God shows Mordecai what to do. He wants him to go and approach Esther. You see, this year that lies ahead of us is going to be faced with challenges. I'm sorry to tell you that. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but you're going to face challenges this year. Some of you may face medical challenges. Some of you may have to sit at the bedside of someone that you love and say goodbye to them. Relationships might end sometime this year. You may lose your job this year. You may have to walk through a difficult time with rebellious children, or you may lose your job. You may lose your home. You may lose everything. I don't know. But I do know that challenges are going to come. How you face those challenges and decisions that you make, we're told and we're, we're all constantly tempted when difficulties come to immediately try to fix it. We want to fix it. We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and say, I got this. But instead, what if we followed the approach of Mordecai and instead of standing up, we fall down? What if we bring ourselves before the Lord with our requests and in our humility and in our humanity come before him and give him space to fight our battles for us? How mighty that would be. And then when we give him that space, God is able to do the things that he does and he shows us what he wants us to do and then we can walk and be faithful. For we see this is what Mordecai does. God gives him what to do. He needs to go and tell Esther, not tell Esther to rise up and overthrow, but to go and to seek his grace. Look at verses four through nine. It says, when Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told 
her, the queen, she was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and he ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square in the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go on behalf of her people or to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of kings in the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he, that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to the come to the king these 30 days. So Mordecai does what he feels God leading him to do and goes and tells Esther to go and talk to the king and just beg him to be gracious. And we see now the second decision that needs to be made is we turn our attention to Esther. And Esther's in this position where she either has to choose to exercise faith or to walk in fear. She's either going to choose to be silent or to be bold. She's in a very tough spot for she knows the law. Remember, this is King Xerxes who doesn't like women standing up to him or even challenging him. And last time, the last time a queen stepped up to him, she was killed. And so she's got her own problems. She can't go into the inner court because there's one law that unless she's been summoned, she hasn't been summoned for 30 days. And so she's fearful. But verse 10 I'm sorry, let's go on down to verse 12. After she's in this place of fear, we see in verse 12, and then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews, but from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold the fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered them. She's stuck in a predicament where she's got to choose either to give herself over to fear or over to faith. And Mordecai gives her this words of encouragement and says, listen, because of his time with the Lord and because of his trust in the Lord, he was so resolved, he knew that God would be faithful to deliver his people even if Esther wasn't faithful. Even if Esther didn't follow through, God's power was enough to redeem them and to deliver them. 
But he's giving her some warnings and, and reminding her that of, of some simple facts. One, she's Jewish, right? So she's, if the decree is for all Jews to die, then the decree is that she will die herself. So she's not going to escape it, even though she's in her lifestyle of safety and security. She's in a very comfortable place. That comfort was soon going to be gone and she would be destroyed as well. So how does she respond? She doesn't do it alone. She seeks, she chooses not to avoid the pain, but she trusts that God will save. And so she calls Mordecai and all the people, please fast for me three days and three nights. Fast that I will have the strength, that I will have the wisdom and that I will have the courage to follow through. And then not only does she do that, she doesn't go alone, but she also invites the women that had attended her. Now you gotta understand how important this is. These women that attended her were not Jews. They didn't even know she was Jewish. And so she comes out and she says, hey, I, I'm, I'm Jewish. And she begins to tell them about her God and how she is a believer in this God. And she's trusting that the, this God will save her. And so these unbelievers, these non-followers, she's actually evangelizing them. She's welcoming those that don't know the Lord into her pain to fast and pray with her so that they can come to know and they can come to trust in him the same time while she's trying to strengthen her faith in him. This is an amazing thing. But she, her resolve after praying is to step out in faith and put everything on the line and to trust in God. She says, if I die, I die. This type of resolve we can never come to on our own. You don't have the strength inside of you to come to this type of resolve on your own. It's only when you give yourself over to the Lord to allow him to give you the strength to come to a place of being able to say, okay, Lord, I understand that your ways are not my ways. Your plans are not my plans, but I wanna trust you and walk with you through this. So what does God do? God gives her the plan. And she goes in to an audience with the king and God is at work in that, that inner room. God is at work even though we don't see him there. He's there because what does he do? He melts the heart of the king. Queen Esther comes in and instead of rejecting her and having her killed, he welcomes her in. And in verse three of chapter five, he says this to her. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the, up to a half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today for a feast that I've prepared for the king. This is also an amazing thing. She comes with her life in her hands, realizing that she could die at any moment. And he welcomes her in and says, okay, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. And she says, I want to give you a feast, you and Haman. So she gives him a feast and Haman's there and he's feeling all good about himself and the king's there feeling all good about himself. And during the, the meal, the king asks her again, queen, what do you want? Anything up to half my kingdom? And she says, I want to give you another meal tomorrow, another feast just for you and Haman, just the two of you. We wanna honor you and your greatness and all of that. And so the king obliges her. But in her obedience, she, in her responding in faith, she leaves room for God to work. 
See, there are things that God's got to do in order for all of this to happen, right? There's still this decree. There's still Haman. There's still some challenges to this plot. There's still some challenges to seeing God's people restored. She still can't just come to him and unfold everything before him. She's got to wait and got to give God time to work. And in our daily lives, I want us to know and be reminded that fear is a real emotion, It's a real emotion that we face every single day of our lives. And we will constantly be tempted to give our lives over to fear, but we must constantly offset fear with faith. Be reminded that God has you. God has your family. God holds your present and God holds your future. And God has uniquely placed you here at this time to be a shining light in the darkness. I mean, if you have to think about Esther's life for such a time as this, he was asking her, do do you not think that God's graciousness and everything that was a part of your life, maybe God was working all those things so that you would be in this right place in this right time so that you could be the mediator for God's people, right? Like your parents died and you were an orphan. That was part of God's plan. God gave, gave, God gave Esther Mordecai to care for her. God allowed her to go and be a part of this beauty pageant and be picked as queen just for this time. And now she's being put in a place where she has to take steps of faith instead of falling back in fear. My prayer is, is that we would learn this lesson from Esther today because I believe so many Christians have given their lives over to fear, that they're no longer in a place where God can actually use them. It, it's almost as though God, as, as Christians, God has given us this platform as an ability to say, world, look at what Jesus does in my life, all the good, the bad, and the ugly, and see how there's grace and see how there's mercy and see how I'm gonna mess it up and God's gonna overcome it. But yet, instead of being on the front of the stage, we're cowering behind the curtain. where we've gone back there and we're saying, Lord, don't use me. Lord, these people scare me. What, what if they say mean things to me? What if they tell me that they don't believe the same way that I believe? What if they call me all kinds of names like a Bible thumper or someone that's a, 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 a big hypocrite? What if they call me a hypocrite, Lord? And we're so afraid that we're afraid that we're sitting back there cowering Why? When we have the greatest message that is ever told, if you are back behind the curtain this morning, let me encourage you with this. I'm not encouraging you to run straight to the center stage. Nope. Take one small step of faith. God, what do you want me to do today? God, what's that next step? And then take that step, 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 and then you'll be on the edge where you're living there, where people are looking at your life, and yeah, they're criticizing you. Yeah, they're critical of you, all of that other stuff, but guess what? You're a shining light in the darkness, and guess what's happening? As your light is shining, people are coming to Jesus. People are seeing, people are believing, people are trusting and to live on the edge of of this trust and faith to say, if I take this step forward too soon or too slow, I will surely die. And this is exactly where God wants us to be. Not cowering in fear, but stepping out in faith. 
God has given you life, God has given you breath, and God has given you a message. So we can make decisions this year to either fight or fall down, to live in faith or to live in fear. And thirdly, and we're gonna go through this really quickly, we see from the example of Haman, we can choose to either extend grace or follow the way of the wicked. What we see in verses uh, chapter five, verses nine through 14, what we see taking place here is, is Haman has just gone home from this feast where he's been honored and he's been puffed up and he's been excited and everyone, everyone's like, yeah, you're the greatest guy ever. He comes home and as he comes home, he goes through the city gates and he looks over and he sees Mordecai there. And he's angry, he's, he's furious at, at him. And so he goes home and he's, he's uh, complaining and he's telling all of his buddies and his wife there and telling them all about the ways that they were honored and all that and, and he's celebrating that. But he's like, but then how can I enjoy all of this when Mordecai still has breath in his lungs? And so he's at a place where he, because he's a recipient of much grace, could extend much grace and yet instead of extending grace, it makes him more angry and more wicked. So he and his family come up with this plan to go build this gallows in the city, in the middle of the city. And then the next morning have, Ham or not Haman, but have Mordecai hung. And so this was his plan. He was going to wake up the next morning and he was gonna go into the king's presence as they're celebrating their greatness and all this. And he was going to come with this plan to kill Mordecai. But that's man's plans. This so is a beautiful account because in chapter six, we see God stepping in again. And read with me verse one. It says six, verse one. And on that night, the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles as they were read before the king. He can't sleep. Why do you think he can't sleep? Coincidence? No, it's the act of God. God is saying tonight, you will not sleep. And so what does he do to try to cure his insomnia? He's like, go give me the book of the annals, like the chronicles of things that have happened in the past because man, that's gotta put me to sleep. It's like saying, hey, go get me the dictionary and start reading it to me, right? So he does that, but guess what? As he's reading it, he was reminded of what Mordecai had done years before. You see, Mordecai was there in the city gate and overheard two of the eunuchs that worked for the king. They had come up with this plot to kill the king. Mordecai hears this and goes and tells Esther and Esther goes and tells the king and the king destroys those eunuchs and the plan is thwarted. But that's all we hear about it. Mordecai doesn't get um, promoted. He doesn't get honored and all of that. It's almost as though he gets forgotten. And then on this night, in this time and in this way, God shows up and the king now remind, is reminded of Mordecai. And just at that exact same time as he's reminded of, of Mordecai, what he has done, Haman comes into the room. Look at the timing of this. It's beautiful. You should and I'm telling you, this is what's happening, okay? So Haman comes into the room, and the king is like, hey, have we ever done anything to honor Mordecai? He's like, no, we haven't. He says, Haman, Haman, you know, hey, if we were to honor somebody, if we really wanted to roll out the red carpet, what would we do for them? And Haman, in his selfishness, is like, ha, the king wants to honor me. Not only is the queen honoring me, now the king. So he comes up with this plan. He's like, this is what, what happened. You put that person on a, on a horse and you ride them through town and you lavish upon them all of these things. And, and Haman's just unfolding this plan and this beautiful thing. He's like, yeah, this is gonna be good. This is gonna be awesome. And the king's like, yeah, this is good, Haman. This is good. Go get Mordecai. What an amazing turn of events, right? So Mordecai gets honored in that way. 
Mordecai comes in and I don't have time to read through the rest of it, but what happens is the king finds out what Haman has done and he's killed. And God's people are saved and Mordecai is elevated and queen, the queen uh, Esther is honored and God's people are saved. What man means for evil, God means for good. Salvation for the Jews came through God's plan. Salvation for all people comes through Jesus. See, I love, I love the, this, this biblical account because we also see it gives us a pattern for making right decisions. And it's the same pattern that Jesus himself followed. Jesus, our Savior, constantly in his life, chose not to fight, but to fall down. Jesus constantly gave up his rights, constantly gave up his position for others. He constantly was surrendering and serving others. Jesus could have fought, right? You know that. Jesus could have led an army that could have overthrown the Roman Empire at the time. He could have, but he chose not to. He chose to live in weakness and in humility so that he could save the world from their sins. If it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. Jesus constantly chose faith over fear. Jesus felt fear. Jesus felt fear. But he always overcame fear with faith. His faith was more powerful than that. Fear had no place in his life. When he started to feel that way, immediately he was constantly reminded, have faith, have faith, have faith. And then we see Jesus constantly choosing not to go the way of the wicked, but constantly extending grace. And if we learn anything about the scripture today, if we wanna begin to make decisions that honor God, let's not go the way of the world. Let's not do the things that the world does, but let's go the way that the Father has shown us. Falling down, walking in faith, extending grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your words and for your promises and your reminders. First of all, God, we're thankful that even though we don't sometimes see you in our lives or feel you in our lives, we can take heart to know that you are still active and working. And Father, you call us to be people that come before you with our needs and to trust you in faith but I'm also aware, God, that even in this place right now, there may be some that have been facing a mountain in their life and have been overwhelmed by it, and they've tried to be faithful. They've constantly come to you with their hurts and with their pains, and it doesn't seem as though that mountain has been moved. So Father, today I pray that whether you move the mountain or Father, you give them a different perspective of even just for a moment that you would help them to see not from the foot of the mountain, but that you would move them to the top just so that they could see once again how their pain and how their difficulties and how their challenges fit into your beautiful plan. God, sometimes we need that. Father, we know that you are faithful and that you're working all things to your end, and you invite us into this mission. Father, I pray today that you would help us to be people of faith, 
that we would move from behind the curtain to trust you, to trust you with our lives, to trust you with the way people see us, the way people feel about us, that we would put all that on the line so that we could shine as bright stars in the darkness. Father, now as we sing, take these words of worship and let them be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.